Our scripture reading is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and then Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God." not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then 11, Romans chapter 11. A few verses. 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his conqueror? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, it's been a fairly busy week, and then there was the general synod Thursday and Friday and other matters, and so the elders gave me permission to use an old sermon and to commemorate the Reformation, which we usually do sometime this year. This sermon was first preached in 2014, and so if you remember it, very good. (laughs) I expect for most of you, as it is for me, it's a pretty new sermon. The traditional date for the beginning of the Reformation is October 31, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Some years ago, somebody named Robert Rothwell wrote on the Ligonier blog, that, quote, Reformation Day commemorates what was perhaps the greatest move of God's Spirit since the days of the apostle. Apostles. And it is certainly a biblical idea to commemorate significant events in the history of God's kingdom. The Lord's Day, for instance, which is every Sunday, is a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' death, of his giving himself 
for us and to us. It's a good thing for the church to remember and to celebrate the Reformation. As a confessional Presbyterian church, we are heirs of the Reformation. Of course, all Protestant churches are heirs of the Reformation in some sense. There are different traditions that trace their roots back to the Reformation. There's the Lutheran tradition, there is the Anabaptist tradition, and there is the Reformed tradition to which we belong. Reform, as Reformed believers, we have certainly profited from uh, the insights of Martin Luther and many others, but the real fountain historically of the Reformed tradition is John Calvin. It's not hero worship to remember and to celebrate the influence of these great men. The Bible certainly highlights and the, the contributions of significant figures in the history of salvation, such as Moses and David and the Apostle Paul, and we're thankful to God for men like that. And so it is with men like Luther and Calvin. They were gifts of God uh, to the church, and through them, God rescued much of the church from the errors of Roman Catholicism. God raised up these men and others to be instruments of reformation in the church. And today we have an accurate understanding of the message of the Bible because through these men that God raised up, he led his people to a new appreciation for the authority of the Bible and the recovery of a whole slew of biblical truths that had been lost in the corruption of the majority of the church in the preceding centuries. So October 31, 1517, considered to be the, the beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther nails his 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Of course, this event was part of something that had been going on for some time, but it was a significant event and it's, uh, it's appropriate to consider it as an important turning point in the history of the church. These 95 theses were 95 propositions that detailed errors in, <clears throat> in the Roman Catholic teaching according to Martin Luther. And they were soon printed and spread all around Germany and Europe. And in the, the, the months and years to follow, more and more people were influenced by them in similar writings, and the renewal took place that we call now the, the Protestant Reformation. But isn't as interesting and as edifying as church history is, it's uh, not to be the content of preaching. So what I'll do this evening is to highlight three biblical themes that were important in the Reformation. I've called this uh, sermon some Reformed emphases, because <clears throat> there are there are um, a few of the biblical themes that were recovered and expounded during the Reformation. These are a few, and they're an important part of the teaching of Reformed teaching of Reformed churches. I could have chosen different ones. Um, for instance, justification by faith is often mentioned uh, in, in a sermon like this, but I'm not going to focus on that in this sermon because there are these other themes that I wanted to mention that are also very, very important and significant. So I've chosen three biblical themes which were important in the Reformation and which 
are significant emphases in the churches that call themselves Reformed or Presbyterian. So we'll consider the authority of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, and the doctrine of vocation. The authority of Scripture, one of the key controversies between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers, had to do with the matter of the authority of Scripture. The Roman Catholic understanding the highest authority in religious matters was the church. Certainly, the Roman Catholic Church believed that in, in the authority of the Bible, but the church stood between the Bible and the people, and it was the church's teaching about the Bible that was the highest authority and not the Bible itself. And along with this, the church taught a great deal that was not taught in the Bible at all. And that teaching was considered to be authoritative as well. So while the Bible had a place, it was not the highest place, not the final authority in the doctrine and in the life of the church. And the Reformers insisted that the Bible is the ultimate authority in matters of faith and of life. The church must teach the Bible, and all that the church teaches must conform to the Bible. We cannot teach things as, as absolute truth that are not found in the Bible. The teaching of the church is always open to, to critique based on the Bible. So in a Roman Catholic setting, the leaders would say, you must believe this or that because the church says so. In the Reformation tradition, the leaders would say, you must believe this because the Bible says so. An expression of this teaching is found in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 10. The supreme judge by whom all controversies of religion are to be settled can only be the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. With this decision, we are to be satisfied. That, of course, includes other, that includes this matter as well. Um, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary of Reformed teaching. Notice it doesn't say that all controversies of religion are to be settled by an appeal to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says that they are to be settled by an appeal to the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. That means that the Westminster Confession of Faith has no authority except insofar as it can be shown that what it teaches is based on the Scriptures. A document like the Westminster Confession of Faith and our other confessions, they certainly should be taken seriously because they are the product of the study of Scripture by many godly, faithful men through the centuries, The documents have been examined and studied and re-examined for centuries, but nevertheless, they are only authoritative insofar as it can be shown that they are faithful to biblical teaching. How can we show this point from the Bible? First of all, by noticing that God himself is the highest authority. The opening chapters of the Bible teach us that God created everything, including human beings, and in his interactions with Adam and Eve, 
he show that his word is to be obeyed. So in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God speaks there with absolute authority. Adam and Eve were required to do what he said. There is no higher authority than God's words. In the New Testament, we hear or we read Jesus saying in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the first part of the biblical teaching, that the Bible is the highest authority. The Bible itself teaches that God has the highest authority. The second part of this argument is that the Bible teaches that God speaks in the Bible. The Bible teaches that the Bible is the Word of God. A key text here is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture comes from God. Now, Paul here in 2 Timothy 3 was thinking in the first place of the Old Testament, but he also taught that his own inspired teaching was the Word of God. So we read, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul says to the Thessalonians, when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So apostolic teaching is the Word of God, and that is what we have in the New Testament. This is a crucially important doctrine. There is no higher authority in matters of faith and life than the Bible. And what that means is that God speaks to us directly through his word. No one can bind our consciences by requiring us to believe or to do things that are not found in the word of God. No church is allowed to say that we must believe this or do this just because this is what the church says. God must say so, and he does so through his word. And that's why Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 20, paragraph 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or which in matters of faith or worship are in addition to it. J.R. DeWitt, John R. DeWitt, says in his little booklet, uh, What is the Christian Faith? said, The Reformation rediscovered and accentuated afresh the authority of the Bible. It threw down the tyranny of a corrupt ecclesiastical hierarchy that it set itself up above the Word of God and repudiated the authority of ecclesiastical tradition coordinate with the Word, insisting with a vigor arising from a newfound truth that Jesus Christ is master in his own house." So if you believe something just because the church says so, then the church is the Lord of your conscience. If you believe something because the Bible says so, then Jesus is the Lord of your conscience. The supreme authority of Scripture 
It's one of the truths rediscovered during the Reformation, and the fact that it is still part of our confession today is great reason for thanksgiving and celebration. Now, that's not to say that the teaching of the church is unimportant. We stand in the line of saints who have gone before us. And what they have discovered in God's Word is extremely helpful for us to understand God's Word. The the confessions are very helpful for us in learning what the Bible teaches. And there is much that is valuable in the traditions that have been passed down to us. But we must always make clear distinctions between the authority of the Bible, and the authority of anything else. The Bible is always the highest authority. Second truth that is prominent in the Reformation and which continues to be prominent in Reformed churches who are true to the Bible is an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Now that term sovereignty simply means that God rules over all things. In the usage of the Reformed tradition, that term means that nothing happens outside of God's control and that in salvation, God is the, God does, what God does is of decisive importance rather than what man does. First, we look at the idea that God rules over all things. And nothing happens outside of God's control. It's called the doctrine of God's providence. And the Westminster Confession of Faith expresses this teaching in chapter 5, paragraph 1. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. Now, because we are heirs of the Reformation and believe that our doctrines must come from the Scriptures, we need to see where the Bible teaches that God controls and governs all things. Consider the following verses. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. A lot is like a dice. This verse is saying that whenever you throw a dice, the outcome is from the Lord. Whenever you flip a coin, the outcome is from the Lord. That's how much God is in control of all things. Matthew ten twenty nine says that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Father. You see a dead bird on the side of the road. That bird did not die apart from the control of our Heavenly Father. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So whether people live or die is under God's control. Whether people are rich or poor is under God's control. Daniel 2.21 says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Romans 13.1 
There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Just a few verses, these that show how comprehensive God's government and control is. An important summary statement is Ephesians 1.11, which says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God sends peace and he sends war. From God comes poverty and or prosperity. The course of history is controlled by God. The role of a dice is controlled by God. The fall of a sparrow is under his control. And all of that in such a way that it does not make human beings puppets. Human beings make meaningful choices for which we are responsible. We're responsible for our actions. There's going to be a judgment at the end of the age. What we do and fail to do makes a difference. In our lives, the actions of the decision makers in the places of power have real influence and lead to real results. The well-being of nations is affected by the wisdom of their leaders. The course of our lives is affected by the decisions that we make and that other people make. God's control does not mean that human actions are without meaning. And yet, in some way, that's entirely beyond what we're able to comprehend. Nothing happens apart from God's will. It's part of what we mean by the term, the sovereignty of God. God is in control of all things. It also means that God is in control of salvation. God decides who, who gets saved and when someone is saved. God is the one who does the saving. The decisive action in the salvation of a sinner is God's action and not man's action. It's not that we come to God first and that he responds to us and decides to save us. God comes to us first and confers salvation on us. God's choice of us is the decisive choice. Our choice to seek God's salvation comes after God acts upon us. Part of this is the doctrine of election, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 2 says, by God's decree for the manifestation of his own glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. This is a display of God's sovereignty. God decides from eternity who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved. God is sovereign in salvation. He is king in salvation. He does not just throw the possibility of salvation out there and see what happens. He is an absolute control. We see this in Ephesians 1. Paul says in verse 4 that 
God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he says that that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus Christ is at the center of our salvation, even in election. We are chosen in Christ. We are predestined to be adopted through Jesus Christ. But it's clear from this that we are saved, not because we first choose God, but because he first chooses us. If we chose him, it is because he first chose us. And we see this sovereignty of God in salvation very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1 tells us that before we're saved, we're dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. But then verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God." So these biblical truths about the sovereignty of God in his control of all things and in salvation, these were truths that were rediscovered and emphasized and gloried in during the Reformation. In the centuries leading to the Reformation, these truths had been lost to a large degree because of the corruption of the church, and the result was that the church was man-centered rather than God-centered. And the Reformation followed the Bible in putting God at the center. And in the Reformed tradition, this biblical emphasis has been preserved, at least in some parts of the Reformed tradition. Now, that's not to say that this is only being preserved in those who call themselves Reformed or Presbyterian. There are unquestionably teachers and churches who continue this emphasis, who do not use the same labels. But it's also true that there are many churches in which these truths about the sovereignty of God are denied or ignored or simply not emphasized. And when that happens, then God moves to the periphery and man moves to the center. One scholar has written, quote, Calvin's true legacy is indeed Not a system, but a method, a method of striving to see everything, not from man's point of view, but from the viewpoint of God. And that certainly accords with what we read in our scripture reading from from Romans chapter 11, 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That's the biblical emphasis and has been the emphasis of the Reformed tradition following the Bible. Third biblical theme, that is a Reformation emphasis, is the doctrine of vocation. That's vocation, not vacation. Vacation is a good thing. It's not really a Reformed emphasis although Reformed people like it as much as anyone else. But what do we mean by the doctrine of vocation? Vocation is another word for calling. The doctrine of vocation is that our daily work is a calling from God and is therefore spiritually significant. An important and significant 
Part of the way that we serve and honor and glorify God is through our daily work. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, No task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. Now, during the Middle Ages, the view had arisen that if you really wanted to serve the Lord, if you really wanted to be serious about serving the Lord, then you had to hold an office in the church, or you had to join a monastery or a convent. The everyday work of ordinary people was not considered to be service to God. It was there, it had to be done, you had to eat, but the work of farming and cleaning house or having a trade or being a merchant, <clears throat> these jobs were not considered to be meaningful as far as serving the Lord was concerned. And Luther and Calvin and others, they rejected that view on the basis of biblical teaching. They understood and taught that that kind of dis- distinction between secular work and sacred work is contrary to biblical teaching. They taught that all work is to be done to the glory of God. They taught that every legitimate job is a calling from God. And it was through these callings that much of our service to God is offered. Eugene Osterhaven, in his book, The Spirit of the Reformed Tradition, gives a good summary of the fact that this teaching had, quote, It would be impossible to exaggerate the significance of this teaching first found in the writings of the Reformers, proclaimed from hundreds of pulpits and accepted by multitudes of Christians who heard the new teaching. It gave strength to the Christian ethic and cheer to the hearts of men. It encouraged the sick and the feeble, gave hope to the forgotten, and wrought iron into the souls of many. Peasants bound to the soil found their toil to have become meaningful. Women felt less the drudgery of their tasks, and people everywhere came to see that the worth of labor depends not on office or station in life, but rather on the spirit of consecration in which it is performed. Called to service before the face of God, they believe the tasks of a day to be filled with blessing when done unto him." End quote. Where do we find that in the Bible? The foundation is the original mandate given to Adam and Eve from God, often called the cultural mandate. <clears throat> Genesis 1.28, we read that God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's the task that God gave to humanity at the beginning of time, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to work the garden, and to keep it. This was the original command for mankind to work to the glory of God. God wanted to be glorified through people working in his creation and drawing from it the the things that they needed to sustain their lives and to make life easier and more enjoyable. And from this has come the knowledge and the technology that we know today. 
We're all involved in one way or another. We all have work and responsibilities, and we are to do them not just because. Not to do our work just because we have to. We're to do our work because it's an important part of our service to God. So we're to pray, we're to read our Bibles, we're to live holy lives and all of that, but we're also to work. And God's purpose is that we serve him through our everyday work. This truth is also taught in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that text, of course, is absolutely comprehensive. Everything that we do, we are to do to the glory of God. That includes our public worship and our private worship and our family worship. That includes evangelism and mercy ministry, but it also includes our rest and our leisure and includes our work, whether it is at home or at school or at the job site or in the office. This gives dignity and meaning and significance to our everyday work. Some jobs seem more significant than others, but every job is significant in our service to God. By doing it well because we are serving the Lord, by serving other people through it, by participating in the great task of keeping human society and culture going, we are serving the Lord. Work is spiritual if it is done to please and serve the Lord. So those are just three biblical themes that are part of the teaching of the Reformers. They've been passed down to us through the Reformed tradition. There are many more themes that could have been chosen. But these are some of what we celebrate when we remember the Reformation and are thankful for it. The Scriptures as the, uh, three, as, as the, the supreme authority for our faith in life, the sovereignty of God, and the doctrine of vocation. These and other reform and biblical themes lead us to a God-centered faith and life. Life is not about us and our glory. It is about God and His glory. We are helpless in our sins. God is our great Savior. Didn't say anything about justification by faith, but that is an essential part of the picture, both in the Bible and following the Bible in the Reformation and the Reformed tradition. We are justified by faith through Christ and not by our works. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are right with God if we believe on Him and As those who are right with God, we bow before his word as our highest authority. We acknowledge God as the one who controls and governs all things, and as the one who sovereignly chooses us for salvation and applies salvation to us, and with God as the one to whom and through whom we live We seek to please him not only by our prayers, but also through our everyday work. We have much more reason, much reason for thankfulness that God has revealed these truths to us in the first place, that he has restored them to the church in the Reformation, that he has preserved them 
through history so that we may confess and cherish them and live them in our day. Let us pray. Our great God, it is such a, it's such a blessing to review some of these things in connection with the Reformation. We're so grateful for those who have come before us. We're grateful for your work in the church at the time of the Reformation, a great time of revival, but also in the centuries since when these truths were, were embraced and taught and passed on and refined. We're grateful for our confessions and for our confessional tradition. We're grateful for the way in which <clears throat> these truths glorify you and humble us. And we pray that you would help us to live them, to live them out in our lives, in our generation, and in the time to come. Pray that our generation may be faithful to preserve and to live out these truths, but that we may also pass them on to our children and grandchildren, and that they may continue to pass on these glorious truths. These truths that put you at the center, that are humbling for us, but at the same time, through them we, we become all that you have designed for us to be as creatures made in your image for fellowship with you. We thank you for just the wonderful way in which you have designed us and life and our relationship with you and salvation and how all of it brings glory to you and humbles us and yet at the same time builds us up and feeds us with your glory. Lord, help us to treasure these things more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.